Mary, what do you have around your neck? Well, not a scarf. You have a beautiful scarf on. Oh, thank you. Which is unusual because we don't get to really be in person for this most is, of these podcasts. This is true. So I have around my neck the museums and the web. What are these things called? Badges? Yeah. I think it's funny they're called badges, right? I didn't do anything to earn it, but I'm at the Museum and the Web's conference with you here in L.A. And what? Yeah, We're what? actually in the same room. I know. Let me see. What is your this badge is very, have on it? This is very weird. Uh, I have all the bling. Sorry, Dude, guys. you have speaker like I have speaker. What's the green one? I got first timer. First time here? New, so I wish it said newbie, but it says first timer. Hi, time. High five. Uh, you have you been before? I have been before. Chicago last year, right? That was there, too. Uh, I also have a speaker badge. Yeah, I got that. You got that, too, Eve. I do not have that. I'm anti-ribbons. What? You're not even wearing your badge. We don't have to go there. What's the black <laughs> one? I don't reason, have the black one. For some reason, they decided to give me chair. What? Which is hilarious. <laughs> like... Uh, I I uh, apparently have been sharing something. I you're did, sitting in a chair. I didn't do, I didn't do a very <laughs> good job because I don't know what I'm in charge of. I am. Did you get a chair one of you? I didn't get a, I told you I'm anti-ribbon. Jeez. No wow. Someone came in years past and gave ribbons out to people. Uh-huh. It said things like runs with scissors and like likes cats. In any case, I, I like museums in the web. So I think we should spend this episode since we're all here together yeah. talking about it now that the conference is almost done and kind of reflect on what we've learned. Yeah, let's do it. What does digital learning look like in a collections-based museum? Find out now on Object Oriented, the podcast. So here we are in Los Angeles. It's um, early April Mm -hmm. 2016. It's raining outside, but... I feel it never warm. rains in Southern California. I feel warm because this has been such a lovely, friendly <laughs> conference. you agree, Eve? I do. I think it's been great. We're in this really cool hotel, the Biltmore. The Biltmore. How yes. would you describe it, Rick? Uh, it's like ornate on top of ostentatious, on top of gilded. Multiple towns. Just, yeah. <laughs> so it's next to an amazing French pastry place that I've had breakfast every day, which is not what we're here to talk about. No. We're going to talk about what we've been doing, what we've yes. been talking about, who we've been meeting, what we've been thinking about, and uh, take our object-oriented listeners on a little bit of a Museums in the Web review. Yeah. Sound good? Sounds yes. Great. So I think we should start with the amazing plenary that we heard at the beginning of the conference with Corey. Corey Doctorow. Yeah. For the win author. Love his book. Uh, no. Little Brother. Little Brother. Uh, he also did a... Disneyland Orient one, like fan fiction. He is very prolific, and of course, yes. he's done a lot of nonfiction talking about uh, security and privacy on the internet mm-hmm. and information, important stuff. Which is really what was the foundation of the speech that he gave to us to kick off this whole conference. Is really thinking about data and how are we how are we dealing with data? How are we protecting data? And why are we collecting the data that we are of our visitors to the museum? Super provocative. Intentionally so, because it's a keynote. Yeah. Um, why, why did you think it was so provocative? Well, I, I've heard people afterwards um, either rethinking decisions they've made or, or um, reinforcing them around what does it mean to collect information at the museum from the visitors, especially if, like us, you're working with young people. Mm-hmm. So if you're like, oh, yeah, I really want to collect information from the family so I can email them afterwards or follow up or do surveys or 
get them back to and let them know about more information. Those are all good things. But after you hear Corey speak, you think, but wait a second. Anytime you collect anything from from uh, any information, it then be- becomes vulnerable. No matter what you try and do, there's always something that can happen. So when we make a decision to collect information, we're putting them at risk at some level. And that's kind of the bottom line of what he was talking about. He told this incredible story about, in other contexts, like these kind of internet controlled, you know, baby monitors, mm-hmm. uh, and this case that happened. Can you remember this right? Um, where this, this mom's child kept compl- uh, complaining that that they were having nightmares because people were talking to them, and the mom had no idea what was going on. And then one night walked in, and the monitor, which was one of those camera ones that could remotely control remove, turned towards her and said, "Oh, mommy's here." And people have been hacking into it. Yeah. And uh, you know, I hear about that in some other domain. And as a parent, I'm horrified. Yeah. But when I think, oh, yeah, as a museum, I have a responsibility in that space, too. Yeah. And I think particularly what you talked about, Barry, is that we are working with young people. And I think that, to me, it really raised that importance of talking about why we collect data or why we're asking for information from them and educating them about the fact that their data is that they own that. That's something that they should be thoughtful about. And they should have a voice in who they give it to and what they're giving and and really just engaging them in that conversation because I think that's so critical and, and we don't engage in that a lot. And I think that, to me, this this speech was a reminder of, hey, this is important and we really, we need to talk about it. Yeah. And I, th- I think the, um, the call to arms was definitely ex- extremely well delivered mm-hmm. in terms of this is happening now. It's a real threat. We're all facing it as just human beings on planet Earth in this time mm-hmm. where we have this amazing capabilities to surveil uh, each other and that governments, uh, if they can do it, they will do it. Uh, And corporations, if they can do it, they will do it. And we cannot assume that their intentions are good. And if someone does have bad intention, that they have great opportunity to do really great harm. And that uh, just as humans, we need to know that, but also as working in public institutions and, and civic institutions, educational institutions, we have a greater responsibility to be aware and to um, uh, be good stewards of the data that we're collecting as well yeah, as perhaps yeah. beyond that. I don't even think and that's the plus side he was talking about, yeah. right? Yeah. We, we, we have a responsibility with our data to put it out there and to make it as open as we can with as little barriers as possible. So don't set up accounts where people have to yeah. make passwords and just have it be fully lead or you have to give up all your information. Just make it all available. And that's part of what makes us special and unique um, contributors to society as libraries as museums um, to be able to take what we've been preserving for so long as we digitize it and put it out I think one of my favorite things was uh, I'm probably misquoting but it was like privacy is a team sport where he was talking yeah. about yeah. <laughs> and I thought that was such a, a, a pivotal or not a pivotal but a critical point to make of that it's really important that we're all working on this issue together that it's not going to be one thing that my museum does, but the American doesn't, or, the, or Cal Academy does, and I don't. We all have to be collaboratively working towards this together. Yeah. So uh, I, I think we all were totally struck, and we've heard a lot of conversations about it, and I think, the, to me, the thing I'm going to be looking for from uh, museums in the web, certainly, uh, as well as other people who are at the thing, is, like, what's the next step? Yeah. Like, what are, what are the things that your institution can be doing to be better stewards, to be better educators with the di- with data, about data and privacy and surveillance and all those issues. And if it's just like a call to arms and it's like, okay, that was nice, and then we go to the next one, I will be a little disappointed. Um, but I think a lot of us were particularly 
like uh, you know with this concern will keep going like, like one person asked like well what should I do when next time I need to buy a software platform to uh, share documents across my institution because the easiest one for us to use is Google or the, or Microsoft or whatever and and he gave us some ideas um, but no clear roadmap um, so I think that this is an ongoing conversation that uh, I hope like somebody carries forward within within museums in the web and beyond. And I also want to share, before we talk about some other sessions, that session ended, as we all noted who were there, um, by doing a Q&A, which yeah. is no surprise, mm -hmm. but he specifically set up a um, mm -hmm. speaking order. Oh, that was yeah. yeah. And that was he, yeah. he asked, you know, they have two microphones and people lined up, mm -hmm. but he said he wanted to specifically go back and forth. Mm -hmm. Someone female identified first and someone male identified. Mm -hmm. So if two males got up, then he would ask for uh, someone female to come in. And that raised not only the importance of, of balance, but also raised implicitly questions about ethnic representation at the conference, yeah. about, about uh, um, uh, economic background representation, and even though it wasn't specifically addressed in that context, whether what in both it wasn't what he talked about, um, it helped start the conference by having us think about who is here, who is represented here, representing museums in this space, and who are the decision makers around some of the stuff we're talking about. And I wasn't raising up so we can chat about it, but I thought it was useful just to kind of mention that some people welcome that, some people were uncomfortable with that. But I think that discomfort is part of um, why Corey made that act and part of why that's such a powerful disruptive decision to make. Yeah. yeah. So really great kickoff for the conference. Yeah. We'll what were some of the other sessions you guys were particularly excited about? Well, I was really excited to go to Linda Kelly's uh, post-digital visitor workshop and I walked in at the moment she said, and thank you very much. <laughs> you, know, and, and, you know, unfortunately, that's often my experience at conferences. Because as I'm going to the session, I run into someone I haven't seen yeah. in a year. Someone grabs me and asks me a question. And that's part of what I love about conferences. It's the time in the hallways. And so I was sorry, Miss Linda's. But what I did catch, I actually got to see what I wanted, was Martha Henson um, from, from um, the UK. And her session was called Designing Digital Experiences for Family. Mm -hmm. uh, and Martha is just so warm and friendly and down to earth and did just such a wonderful job sharing her, you know, kind of top tips for if you're going to do something for families, you need to think about things yeah. like, you know, um, uh, making sure that at the information desk, there isn't also um, little consumables uh, that were designed for impulse buying because it makes families not able to go to the info, info booth because doing that means you've got to fight with your kids who want to buy something. Uh, it was just so wonderful. Cool. So the specifics were wonderful, but just the general direction, which I've seen in a few sessions, of understand your audience. I was just talking with someone from the U.S. Holocaust Museum who was talking about the workshop she went to that was part of the conference about, oh, what's that phrase called? I might not get the phrase right, but it's about understanding the pathways uh, of how visitors experience the museum and yeah. the importance of, again, understanding what, what, um, how they experience the museum. And, of course, the session that I got to participate on this morning with Antenna International uh, and Masha from the Met was about designing stuff for youth but doing it with youth. Mm -hmm. So that theme has been very important for me um, throughout the, the conference, really understanding who we're working for, not just making something because we like it. Yeah. Or, or, or we have ideas based on our own expertise about what might work, but really making sure what works works because it's meeting the needs of, the, of our visitors, our students. Mm -hmm. I think one thing I've really enjoyed in this conference is how the organizers have really been tackling this issue of what is digital today? What, mm. How does digital look like in museums? And um, the idea that we're not having digital as sort of these discrete departments or um, an individual or a few individuals, but that we're really looking to integrate digital throughout museums and think of it um, we went to that great session this morning, Barry, where they were talking yeah. about it being sort of this distributed um, kind of network throughout the building. 
And it's called Co-Designing the Future of Museum Digital Literacy. Yes. Thank you. It was great. Um, and I thought it was really thought-provoking to kind of think about how are we changing this and how are we agents of change within our museums to kind of shepherd this new way of thinking in to help talk to our colleagues about it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what I love uh, really about this conference is that they've really been thinking about it and inviting all the participants into the conversation too. It's not this very sort of top-down kind of thing, but it's like this is a common issue that we're experiencing. How can we work yeah, and I actually have here the, the, the one photo I took during yes. that session was this slide that was about words to use, yes. how to shift the old way of thinking to the new way. So a few examples were, we need to stop talking about skills, mm -hmm. skills that you need to learn, to talking about literacies, ways of understanding the world. Stop being reactive, start being strategic, move away from IT for the few versus this is for everyone. Um, it's not about the project, but the process. Not about technology, but the digital, mm -hmm. and it goes on and on. I thought that whole uh, that mental framework was so useful for me to think about. Like, oh yeah, it's not about like there's the I'm a digital department, and and then I'm a resource for others to use. Like, no, no, we all need to be everything digitally, yeah. and I might have special responsibilities around advocating or or advancing certain strategic agendas around it, but it, everyone needs to be able to think digitally, or none of this work will move forward. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think that's such an important. One of the key takeaways I'm going to leave this conference with is how to implement that once I get back to my own museum, or how to start thinking about that. So we've gotten to go to museums by being here. Anything that you guys saw that was inspiring that you got to do as a result of being here at this, this conference? I can't stop talking about the Getty. I went to the Getty the first time. We're so jealous. We're jealous. <laughs> I think I have talked about the Getty <laughs> to every single person I've talked about it. I just... I think the biggest thing is the very simple thing that everyone I spoke to who was at the Getty was unbelievably kind and welcoming and mm -hmm. just friendly. And it was such a good reminder to me of that initial moment when you step in the door, the first person you meet at the, the museum or the institution that you're visiting. It's so important that you feel welcomed. It's just, it, it really shaped my experience and I think made it feel made me feel as positive about the experience that I had there that I do. Oh, that's wonderful. And I just came from the Museum of Jurassic Technology, which is a museum <laughs> I first went to 25 years ago. Whoa. And I wasn't planning on going. I love it. It always has a place in my heart. But at lunch, someone said they were going. I said, fine. I don't care what I was planning to do. <laughs> I'm going. And it was very moving for me to go. And if, if you know, if you, have you been before you? I have not. Have I you been, Rick? Yep. Yeah, so... For our listeners who haven't been before, um, you might have already noticed from the title, the Museum of Jurassic Technology. There's something wrong already. Something where you go, this doesn't seem right. Technology during the Jurassic era of dinosaurs? Like, what's this about? This isn't, you know, like a creationist museum. This is a museum that loves natural history and adores natural history museums and wants to use the artifices of natural history museums to create a sense of awe mm -hmm. about the world. But by in part, in our cynical age, putting the visitors in a position where they're not sure if what they're seeing is real or not. Mm -hmm. And there are layers upon layers upon layer. And one of the exhibits that I argued with my friend about when I was there 25 years ago was the stink ant, which is this model, very traditional natural history model, the blade of grass with an ant on it and this weird thing growing out of its head. And you pick up the phone, you put it on your ear, and it explains how this fungus essentially turns this ant into a zombie. And I told him this is absolutely ridiculous, and he was arguing that it was real. And I never heard of it at the time, so I figured it was fake. Uh, and then it turned out it was real. And now I work at the American Museum of Natural History, where we have a hall with photographs of bugs, and it's a photograph of the stink ant. Mm -hmm. And I now work at a place where 
that affirms the reality of this beautiful, horrific, fascinating, weird evolutionary symbiotic relationship, parasitic relationship rather. Um, but I first experienced it there, mm-hmm. and it was that sense of awe um, in the in the engagement that the museum has with the visitors that, for me, is what's so beautiful about not only that museum as a work of art, because it is a work of performance art, but what I feel so honored to work with by being in the Natural History Museum, mm-hmm. because that's what we want to leave everyone with when they come to the museum. And visiting there today was a great reminder about the 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 communication mechanism we have that is the museum and our history of how we connect with visitors. Uh, is so powerful, profound, uh, and beautiful. Yeah, I uh, I love that museum, um, and I always leave uh, questioning what's real after that, and that's always a really fun experience. Um, the other museum we got to go to at the opening of the um, conference was a reception where we got to go to the how do you say is it? Broad? Broad. Sorry, I always keep saying, I've been saying broad. But the Broad. spelled that way, right? Yeah. So the Broad. Which is someone's name? Is that why? Yeah. Yeah. It's a new contemporary art museum um, that opened in kind of the sort of big museum sector, one of the big museum sectors of Los Angeles. And it was essentially just open to us to wander around. And um, uh, I mean, I have a very, you know, conflicted experience with uh, contemporary art. Some of it is completely bewildering and some of it's wholly enchanting. Um, I thought it was really, really cool just being able to walk around in that space. And one of the um, most interesting ones was the Infinity Room, yeah. right? The, yeah. Yeah. And what I liked about it was not that it was particularly great. It yeah. was just the, the way that they contextualized it where you had to stand in line, put in your phone number, and then they would t- tell you, and about you know, in this case it was like 45 minutes, when your time to go into the room uh, arrived. So it creates this anticipation. Yeah. Like, oh, I got 40 minutes almost. What am I going to do between now and then? Whatever. And then you get in there, you stand in line, and you, you're chatting about it with other people. Like, what's it going to be like? And whatever. You know? And then you, and you can only be in there for like 47 seconds. And then they kick you out. So it's like, this is going to be amazing. What is going to happen? You know? And I always thought the funniest thing would be like, if you just go through and the outside is the exit. There's like nothing there. You know? And then, you, and then it says, don't tell anybody. <laughs> but no, actually there is an artwork. There's an artwork you experience. And it's fine. It's not, you know. But it's really the buildup and that you get to be in it and then you get to walk out and like say that you like that whole like uh, contextualizing experience creating the anticipation and getting a little reminder in your phone it's 10 minutes till it's gonna happen like (laughs) like I kind of like I love I love that about um, art that it creates the all those feelings in you um, to observe things you wouldn't normally observe in that way well but to be no surprise this conference is very Twitter active uh, with the hashtag MWXX XX is the 20th year um, and I think the most common photo I've seen that's been distributed has been people in the infinity room, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, whether because they went for the open night reception or they kind of dipped, you know, dipped out to, to go catch it. Mm-hmm. Now, we mentioned at the beginning, Rick, that you have a, a black uh, sticker on your bag that says chair. Does that mean you chaired a session? <laughs> Does not mean I don't know. I was apparently co-chair. With who? With with you guys. But I don't have a black sticker. I don't know. <laughs> Alright. Well, what do we do? What do we do? So we got... Uh, so for some reason the conference uh, decided to allow us to create... Boldly. Boldly. Courageously. Courageously. Took the risk. Of allowing us to create a pop-up museum that was created during the conference and then presented as a session as a session and then presented over the course of the conference and then will be taken down at the close of the conference tomorrow with mobile games created to experience 
this pop-up museum of artifacts from 20 years of the conference that were made at the session that can be done only during the conference. Eve, how's yes. that for you? <laughs> <laughs> it was... So I'll admit, when we first started talking about this, I really had no idea how this entire pop-up museum was going to go. Um, I think the thing I loved best about that idea was that moment when we kind of explained the idea of what we were trying to do to people, and then there was just kind of general confusion in the room. <laughs> and everyone's like, I, what are we doing? Like, I just want to sit at my table, and there's, a, aren't you guys going to talk to us? I'm like, no, no, no. No, no, no. And then, I don't know who it was, but someone was like, you have ten minutes. And then just chaos erupts <laughs> in the room, and everyone's like running around and grabbing things, and it was just... Man, it was just this wonderful energy and just enthusiasm, I think, mm -hmm. for being able to do what we love doing, which is thinking about museums and being active in museums, but doing it in a space that's completely removed from museums and, and you know, our sort of stereotypical collections, I guess. Someone who came in during that period but was late, so they missed, they said, I, I had no idea what was going on. Mm -hmm. But when I looked at everyone's faces... Mm -hmm. And the excitement and the engagement that was going on, they were like, this is the place I want to be. <laughs> and they hadn't felt that before at the conference. And that was um, uh, a very exciting moment for her. Um, and what they were doing, of course, was first building um, these little mini exhibits. We gave uh, paper and markers and tape and manila envelopes full of the objects that people had donated. What were some of your favorite objects that you saw donated? The mugs. I mean, I think there was yeah. so much history behind those mugs. That, and th these little in-stories that really tell you about sort of the community and the people who are here in the community. Yeah. I thought that was great. There was a photo um, from a bird of a feather session mm -hmm. that said, um, uh, hell is managing other people's content. Mm -hmm. So it was the table talking about that, but it was just a photo of that sign. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, there... Uh, there were three dogs for some reason. <laughs> yeah, the dogs were great. Like, we were apparently really instrumental in a series of conferences. Sorry. Well, sure if you no, they're very important. They were from Jennifer, one of the founders of the conference. And every year there's a magnificent um, collection of, of the writings of the, from the proceedings, which you can download online. And so every year they all get laid, got laid out on the floor to be organized, and one of the dogs would lay on top of them. And so these are the dogs, <laughs> the preceding dogs, right? So we had those wonderful objects, you know, a, a, a video on a memory stick, uh, yeah. something from Second Life, right? wonderful, great stuff. Um, and while people were building their little exhibits in small groups, um, there were people designing mobile games to play them, uh, text-based ones. And in 30 minutes, we had eight exhibits completely done, mm -hmm. three new games created, and we didn't mention tour guides, three tour guides yep. who made tours. And we flipped the switch and said, all right, everybody, museum's open, everyone go on tours, or play the games, or um, just visit it. But whatever they were doing during those 40 minutes, we asked them, we invited them to take on a role, yeah. to play with us. And that was so much of what this was about. How do you learn differently when you're playing? And what does it mean to take on roles? And what does it mean to experience museum content and being with others through play? And that level of excitement and the look on people's faces that that attendee reported back to us, I think came through the experience of what it means to get to go into a role. We didn't plan to have everyone come and sit down and say, okay, everyone, we're now going to role play. Mm -hmm. Would you like to do that? We gave them a role when they walked in and just sent them off. And it wasn't until 40 minutes in that we put up that slide that said, this is the title of the session. My name is Barry. My name is Rick. My name is Eve. My name is Coven, who did it with us. Um, and then it started feeling like it, what we were used to. But for 40 minutes, no one knew what was going to happen next. And they were willing to suspend their um, expectations and say, great, lead us on this experience. Take us on an adventure. And then they 
took us on an adventure because we had no idea what they were building. We didn't know what the tours were. We didn't know what the games were, nor what they would make. But we believed them. We put faith in them. And they then created something remarkable. And now, you know, a day and a half later, people are going and visiting in the plenary space. People are playing the games. People are tweeting out what roles they had and that they were proud of it. Mm -hmm. um, and we got to have this fascinating discussion for an hour. I had a half-hour presentation I was going to give. I had <laughs> 30 <laughs> slides. And I said, this isn't happening, guys. Let's just keep the conversation going. And, and we did. Yeah, it was, was, it was about games and tours and objects and curation. It was rich and fun. All right, you guys ready to go to the karaoke party? Karaoke. Yeah. <laughs> Woohoo. So excited. <laughs> okay. All right, bye, everybody. Bye. So, hey, let's go to our News of the Future segment. And to help us out, we've invited, as usual, Elizabeth Merritt from the American Association of Museums, the Center for Future of Museums. Elizabeth, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Barry. And hi, Rick and Eve. It's so good to talk to you again. Hey, Elizabeth. Hi, Elizabeth. So what are we going to get to chat about the future today? What are you seeing in the news affecting museums of the world that you think uh, we should be thinking about? Oh, well, this time I want to turn the lens internally to some innovative museum practice and get your take on what has been described as a hot new trend in museums, which is the formation of innovation labs or innovation studios. Ooh, this nice. very, yeah, this has been very much in the news relatively recently because the Carnegie Museums launched their innovation studio with Jeff mm. Inchlow leading it. But as the coverage of that opening pointed out, this idea of incubators and centers of innovations has really been taken off broadly. You've got uh, IMA Lab, you've got the Cooper Hewitt Labs, you've got the Met Media Lab. So I wanted to ask you, what's your take on what's up here? Is this really museums doing new things? Is it just relabeling stuff they've already done? And if it really is new, what is it about having a lab or an innovation hub that lets museums do new things or get around old challenges? I remember back in the late 90s, I had the opportunity to go up to Cambridge and visit the MIT Media Lab. Uh, and <laughs> take uh, some of the Legos they have, because the it was a whole wall full of Legos, uh, and bring them back and build a little staircase to leave on my desk as a reminder of not just my time there, but, but really the, the idea that they were modeling about how one could really uh, experiment and explore and learn new things. Uh, and what I feel like has been going, now, going on now in museums, as you're describing, is that practice just filtering down to, into our space, um, as people value now more the importance of design uh, and iteration and innovation um, and the need for a safe space that people get to take risks uh, within our more conservative institutions uh, to help drive change. Interesting. So you think that part of it's explicitly giving the staff permission to try new things out and break the rules and maybe even fail? That's what it feels like to me. I mean, when you see some of the things that people are doing, they're, they're kind of goofy. Um, I actually got to visit um, the Met Lab, which is on the other side of Central Park for me here in New York, and got to interview um, uh, Marco, um, who, who runs their lab, um, and learn more about some of the new stuff they've released, like uh, um, a Chrome browser plug-in. So every time you pull up uh, a new web page, uh, a new browser, the uh, one of their... Um, uh, artworks appear, which has a cat in it, um, which is a little goofy and silly, but it, it's a way for them to push their artwork out uh, and also appeal to, you know, Internet's uh, love affair with cats. I confess I use that and I find it tremendously amusing. I love having their cats pop up, pop up on my screen. 
So, but I noticed that most of the labs, all of the ones we just named, are centered on digital innovation. Is really this idea of a lab inherently tied to technology and digital resources, or is innovation something that could be played around with more broadly, even with uh, more old-fashioned techniques of just you know exhibit design per se, or or educational techniques? Yeah, uh, th- that's exactly what I've been thinking about. Is that um, uh, you know, museums have always been places where they were, lab, you know, laboratories for innovation, um, you know, even in, in the pre-digital era. Um, and uh, there's definitely our coll- coll- colleagues at the, um, the Tech Museum in San Jose and the Exploratorium um, just on the other side of San Francisco where their exhibit uh, development is done out in the open where you can just kind of see these guys working on stuff physically building um, the infrastructure of the exhibits. And that itself is really interesting and a whole new um, movement within museums to make the whole process of museum making more transparent. I think this is part of that. Um, The digital, of course, um, uh, makes it uh, much more uh, shows that the museums are trying to be as relevant as possible for the new technologies, but also just like the, the brick and mortar stuff. Like, how do you build signs? How do you build like the, you know, the physical displays? That's also really cool for people to see in the process as it's being made, as well as the the final pro- uh, product. So I think this movement of transparency and openness within museums, that this is just one part of that that I'm really excited about. Um, and I'm embarrassed to say that my institution is, has not been, uh, you know, has not gone as far down that road as other institutions. So I'm really looking to my colleagues here um, at AM&H and the Field Museum and, and these other ones you've looked at as really good examples that I can take back to our people to really promote that kind of uh kind of risk-taking and showing, showing, showing the sausage-being-made process that labs really exemplify. Barry, you referred earlier to the fact that this is really a trend that is coming in from the outside world because a lot of high-profile companies have their own innovation labs or skunk works where they try things out. And it kind of amuses me when you talk about transferring that to museums, because I think one of the reasons that big companies have separate labs is because they are risking real important assets. You know, you could lose a lot of money if you double down on an unproven technique. So having a sort of safe space to play with a certain amount of resources is an important way both to drive business innovation, but also to manage your risk. What's the real risk to museums? I mean, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? Are they worried about looking undignified? Is it a risk because, is it a reputational risk? Uh, Or do you feel that it's a way of leveraging cultural change just because um, some organizations are so inherently conservative? Well, you know, when you talk about us being conservative, in many ways we need to be, right? We are literally conserving the past, uh, uh, whether it's uh, millions of years old dinosaur bones or or art treasures or cultural treasures from around the world. So when it comes to um, disrupting practices about how we engage visitors within our halls or even redefine what it means to be a museum in the digital age, such as getting to experience a Coursera or Khan Academy course without even coming to the museum but still learning from us, or for young people, a mobile app, let's say, that's bringing out some aspect of the museum experience. These are new ways of not only engaging visitors to the museum, but rethinking what it means to connect with the museum and its assets. And we're con- we, we, that process, we're, we've barely begun in many ways to settle what does it mean to be a museum in the 21st century. So being able to take these kinds of risks to ask disruptive questions 
but do it in a way where we're not always going to be sure what the answer is going to be um, means that we have the safety and space to um, explore uh, what this looks like um, without feeling like doing so is going to be a threat to the way things are. Um, even though it is a threat to the way things are, but often these are questions that we want to explore so we can build on best practices today as we move towards the best practices of tomorrow. Yeah, I see. So when you're thinking about how to make an, an innovation studio or a lab as successful as possible, it seems to me that one of the risks of partitioning it that way is sending the message, here's where we get to play around, here's where we get to be innovative, but every place else inside the museum is off the hook because all the innovation is happening over here. From the people you know who are working in these places, um, how much of it is, is sort of branding and encouragement? Behind the scenes, are they more integrated? Is it like, yeah, no, we're all being more innovative and, and this is where it surfaces, but it's not just these three staff for the lab that get to do the innovative stuff? Well, to be clear for our, our listeners, uh, our, our three institutions do not have labs. But for my time speaking with um, the Met, the way they're structured is to be not doing research um, and innovation for the lab, but for the whole institution. So this is a place for a curator to go to, saying, we are trying to figure out something about new ways to think about how to um, protect our collections and share them out with the world in a safe way. Or someone who's um, producing a new exhibit to say, we want to think about how to bring a robot into our exhibit to show the industrial process of, of creating uh, uh, um, outfits. Or someone from the education program says, we want to do something new with the mobile app, and we're trying to figure out in our education programs how to use the map. So it's, it's not to say that they're becoming a silo separate and apart from the rest of the institution, but rather it's a practice and a resource that gets shared throughout. Um, I think that's tremendously exciting and interesting to think about digital not just as a technology, but as a, a mental practice that's for everybody. Yeah, yeah. I think this is a really interesting topic, and I'm going to continue to follow it in the news, and I'll be cataloging new museum labs as they emerge and following up with staff to invite them to blog at the CFM blog about their experiences, about the sorts of things they've been able to try out through the labs and about how procedurally they, they started one and integrated it into their organization. So I'll be eager to share that with your listeners as well. Thank you, Elizabeth. And we'll put in our notes for this episode as well the link to my interview with um, uh, uh, the Mets Media Lab, both its history, what they've links to some of the things they've done so far, and their thoughts on the future of this space. Great. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, guys. Great talking to you again. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Object Oriented. Check out our blog at www.objectoriented.info for podcast links episode-related information and discussion in past episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at O-Oriented, or you can follow us individually at Gauss Eve, Mushmi, and Rick the Ranger. We have our own blogs at digitalfieldnotes.com, mushmi.org, and rangerrick.com. If you have ideas for future episodes, we'd really love to hear them. Thanks for listening. What does digital learning look like in a collections-based museum? Find out now on Object Oriented, the podcast.